As we continue our journey through this great book of Holy Scripture, we are in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. We'll be looking at this chapter, but let me read just a few verses as we begin. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and verses 34 to 36. Hear the word of the living God. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth. And his ways, justice and those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. This is the word of the living God. And together we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated and let us pray together. Almighty God, now we pray that the preaching of the word of Christ would be his voice to his sheep. We pray that the Spirit might enliven us, illumine us, give us aid in both the preaching and in the hearing of your word. Help us now to receive this as our food this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps you, like me, enjoy good books. Some of you like to read them. Some of you like to collect them. Some of you like to do both with them. Others of you seek to avoid them. Perhaps you're one of those newbies that likes to read books on a lighted box that comes in your pocket or purse. But for most of us, there is a joy in pulling a book off the shelf and reading it, even if only a page here and there over the course of months. One of the things that I enjoy about books is... The cover. I know that seems strange. The important part is what's on the inside. Covers usually are not that important. But for me, books and their covers are interesting. I like to feel books. I like to smell books. I like to see old books on the shelf. Sometimes books that I enjoy are those that have wonderful insides, but the covers I also like. For instance, several years ago, one of the brothers of our church for a special occasion, got me a copy of Pilgrim's Progress. And one of the neat things about Pilgrim's Progress is what's on the inside, the story on the inside. But the front cover and the back cover came with wood 
from the town and the time period in which the author, John Bunyan, lived. That was the cover. Now, the important stuff was on the inside, but the cover mattered. Or one or two Bibles that I have that are covered with really good materials. Or some old books with tattered covers that are falling apart. But the age of those covers is about 400 years old. Who has touched those covers? These are the thoughts that I think about. But for most of us, it's not the covers. It's the stuff inside. I would submit to you in Daniel chapter 4... It's actually the covers or the bookends of this chapter that preach the ultimate theme. Here's what I mean. The meat of this story is the work of the living God in crushing the pride of a pagan king. In sending him out into the field in madness to act like an animal of the field for years. And then to restore him to his kingdom... Simply so that he could understand who the living God is. But notice the covers of the story. The front and the back. The beginning, King Nebuchadnezzar writes these words. His kingdom, that is God, is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is from generation to generation. That's the front cover. Everything that comes after that is the material of the story. But notice the back cover. We heard it read just a moment ago. Notice the back cover of this story. Verse 35. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. The bookends of chapter 4 of Daniel in the Old Testament of Holy Scripture are God rules and reigns over all things. The story in the middle is how Nebuchadnezzar got from one side to the other. I want us to see that this morning. In fact, this bookend theme makes its way throughout the verses of this long chapter. Notice the repeat of this refrain. Look at verse 3. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Skip down to verse 17. In order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Verse 25. Till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Verse 32. Until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. There's a repeated refrain here. Both of the book ends of this story are the glory of God who rules and reigns and gives power to whom he wills. And sprinkled throughout the story of this pagan king living about 550 years before Jesus of Nazareth was born. Sprinkled through his story is that same theme. God rules and reigns. And he gives kingdom and dominion to whom he wills. Perhaps if we could summarize Daniel chapter 4, we could summarize it in this way. King Nebuchadnezzar was brought low so that he might see true glory. I want us to walk through chapter 4. If you're just joining us, you need to know that the book of Daniel is a real story. It involves Daniel and some others brought out of exile when King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, crushes Jerusalem. 
This was a judgment of God upon them for breaking covenant with him. Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, would have been the Caesar or the Alexander the Great of his day. He would have conquered the known world. He would have been the king of kings, humanly speaking. But Nebuchadnezzar brings these Hebrews into his land, and for many of them, taking the cream of the crop and seeking to make them good counselors in Babylon, knowing the ways of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, living according to his design, honoring him as the God of gods. Daniel and his three friends there in the land seek to be faithful. God will ultimately return these Hebrews to Jerusalem. The temple will ultimately be rebuilt. And some 500 years later, a baby will be brought in. The baby whose name is Jesus, who would ultimately become the savior of all who trust in him. That's where we're at. But what is a pagan king, a non-Jewish person, outside of all the work of God so far, what does he have to do with anything in the Bible? It's interesting, Daniel chapter 4, we read of this king. We've met him several times. He is quoted by name. His name is quoted, that is, some 80 times in Scripture. And here in chapter 4, after seeing him build a statue to his own name and glory and asking everyone to worship it, after forcefully declaring that if people don't interpret his dreams, he will kill them, this prideful pagan king publishes a letter. Here it is. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Imagine that, Nebuchadnezzar giving a benediction. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. How great are his signs, how are mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is not the Nebuchadnezzar that we've seen in chapter 1, 2, and 3. But here at the beginning of this chapter, bookended on one side is the glory of God. I want us to walk through and see how he got here. The first thing that we'll see is the pride of man. The pride of man. We're going to look at Nebuchadnezzar, but... Friends, really, we're going to be looking at our own hearts in many ways. The pride of man. Look at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in. And I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last, Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens. 
and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely. Its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree that cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers, the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. So now we're faced in Daniel with a second dream. Nebuchadnezzar has already had one dream, and Daniel gave its interpretation, and its interpretation offers hope to the people of God, to look forward to the time when the Son of God would come and set up a kingdom by his own blood. But now we have a second dream, and it comes with a decree. Interpret the dream. Now Daniel is recognized. He's praised, isn't he? Look at verse 8 and 9. Nebuchadnezzar speaks and says these complimentary words. I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. Explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar's trust rests in Daniel. He can do it. He's done it before. What is the dream that he sees? We'll get to its interpretation, but what is the dream? Well, in verses 13 through 15, there's a tree. We already know that this tree stands for a person because in verse 15, what pronoun is used? Him. The tree signifies a person. And there is a watcher, a term used for an angel, really only here in the Old Testament. But an angel comes and commands that the tree be chopped down. And that the him, that is the tree, will begin to live like a beast among the animals. Wet with dew in the morning as if sleeping out with the animals at night. And there's a reason for this dream. And it's that theme that is sprinkled throughout the entire chapter. In order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men. That's the dream. What's its interpretation? Well, look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time and his thoughts troubled him. Isn't it interesting? Nebuchadnezzar said, no secret bothers you. No secret troubles you. And yet he's troubled. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. That's code for 
it ain't going to be good. Verse 20. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord, the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. There's that theme again. Who is the real king? Who really does rule over all things? Verse 26. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So what's the interpretation? Well, Daniel essentially says, you're the you're the tree and you're going to go live out with the beasts of the field. Notice in verses 18 and 19, there's discussion of Daniel's name. Daniel was given a a new name when he was brought into the land of the Babylonians. But all throughout the book, he's referred to by his Hebrew name, Daniel. But here in just a moment, he's referred to as Belteshazzar, that's the name that Nebuchadnezzar had given to him through his servant. And it's a name which essentially praised Nebuchadnezzar's God. Interpret the dream for me. And notice Daniel is troubled. This teaches us something. Daniel actually cares enough for Nebuchadnezzar that he doesn't want the dream to be about him. We don't know all of the details, but somewhere in there, Daniel had gotten by the Holy Spirit of God enough care and concern for the lost in his heart that he didn't want coals of fire poured on their heads even though they deserved it. Imagine that. A follower of God actually loving a lost person enough that they don't want them to see the judgment of God. May it not be of you. May it be of those who hate you. But it was ultimately about Nebuchadnezzar. He'll be driven from humanity. And he'll be stricken with a type of mental illness, if you will, where he will graze with the beasts for a period of time. But there is some hope offered, isn't there? Look at verse 26 and 27. Your kingdom shall be assured to you after you know that heaven rules. Boys and girls, that's another way of saying after you know that God rules. And Daniel offers him this advice. Therefore, change your ways 
now, Nebuchadnezzar. Seek righteousness. Seek God's ways. We said that this section was entitled The Pride of Man because we could put a period here and we could say, certainly, after Nebuchadnezzar had seen all that he had seen through Daniel before, now he has personal revival. Now he says, I'm going to humble myself before the living God who is revealed to me yet again through the mouthpiece of his servant, his will. But boys and girls, is that what Nebuchadnezzar does? Look next at verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. Many scholars make the argument, and I agree with them, that Nebuchadnezzar sat on this word of God for a year. Was he mulling it over? Was he coming under conviction? Was he thinking, how might I surrender my prideful ways? How might I act justly? What was he doing in this 12 months, walking about the royal palace of Babylon? Verse 30 tells us, this is what Nebuchadnezzar, who'd received the word of the Lord, was doing. The king spoke, saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. You ever walk away after hearing the word of God glorying in yourself? Here it is, the pride of man. Now Nebuchadnezzar is a lost man. But there's pride. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Kings would often include inscriptions in their building projects. If you're you're new to the things of Christianity, you need to understand that Nebuchadnezzar is a real historical king. He he actually lived some five to six hundred years before Jesus. There are historical so-called non-religious records about Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes king after his father, and he builds a great kingdom a very large kingdom conquering much of the known world such that Jeremiah chapter 4 can call him the conqueror of nations. But we have records of Nebuchadnezzar outside the Bible. In fact, some of the walls that he rebuilt in Babylon, he would inscribe with words of praise to himself. This is non-Bible stuff. Listen, for instance... The clay foundation from the walls had cylinders, and one of them read this way, I built a strong wall that cannot be shaken with bitumen and baked bricks. I laid its foundation on the breast of the netherworld, and I built its top as high as a mountain. Archaeologists estimate that there were likely some 15 million baked bricks used to build much of the wall and city of Babylon, and many of them, perhaps most of them, had stamped on them the name Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is a real person. But what we have in clay cylinders and baked bricks dug up from the earth from 2,500 years ago, we actually have the same kind of prideful statements listed in the Bible. I rule the world, Nebuchadnezzar says. Maybe you don't think you rule the world, but what kingdom do you think you rule, friend? 
Nebuchadnezzar's dream comes true after sitting on it for, it seems, 12 months. You know, Nebuchadnezzar's plight, his pride, is really the plight of us all, isn't it? Go all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. Serpent Satan whispers, Can you really trust the word of God? And in pride they sin. We will have it our way. We know better. And pride has filtered its way through every last one of us, friend. And in our pride we build up our own name. We build up our own glory. We chase after all kinds of sinful things that will not bring us joy and life in the end. Here sits Nebuchadnezzar in his pride. I built this from my majesty. As is often the case in the book of Daniel, we could put a period here and assume what a right and good ending would be. You would assume, wouldn't you, that the very next verse would say, the living God wiped him out. But that's not what happens. Because in addition to seeing the pride of man, the second thing that we see in this chapter is the blessing of being brought low. The blessing of being brought low. The dream comes to pass. It's the worst kind of nightmare. The king of all the known world now doesn't even have his faculties present enough to get in his bed at night and to dress himself and to feed himself. Verse 31. While the word was still in the king's mouth, glorying in himself, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Now, I said that this was the blessing of being brought low. How is this a blessing? Verse 33, that very hour. The word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He's reduced to being an animal. The king becomes like the beasts of the field. Verse 32 says, seven times shall pass over you. It's a challenge to interpret. Many scholars would argue that the word times could be translated years. Seven years. How is this a blessing? Being brought low in the midst of such pride. If the archaeological accounts are accurate, he's outside of a city. The very walls of which are stamped with his name. And he's eating grass. How is this a blessing? Verse 34. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. See, the blessing of being brought low, friend, is that in being brought low, his eyes were taken off of himself and placed on to the living God. 
Perhaps your story is similar. Not that you were an animal like living in a field. But maybe you would say, God allowed me to sink to rock bottom so that he could show me himself. God allowed me to suffer for a period of time. God destroyed my pride so that it was all out of the way and I could see who he is. And notice in verse 34 the order of the cure of Nebuchadnezzar. First, he lifts his eyes to God. Some of you need to come to understand that that is your cure today. That you've been existing as the king of your own kingdom, glorying in your own name. But it's a name that will fail. Lift your eyes to the living God. But secondly, not only does he lift his eyes, his reason returns to him. You know that one of the things that is true about converted people, people who go from being lost to saved, people who are not Christians to born-again Christians, you know one of the things that's true about them? Is that they've come to their spiritual senses for the first time. When the word reason is used here in Nebuchadnezzar's case, he literally lost his reason. But for most of us, the kind of reason that happens in our own journey is... We could do a math problem as a lost person. We can do a math problem as a saved person. Not that kind of reason. The kind of reason that for the first time you say, I am a sinner. And the living God who made me for relationship with himself. This is the very one that I've been separated from my whole life long. And I didn't know it. And I was chasing after all kinds of sinful things. Thinking, as the scripture says, that there was life in those things. But for the first time. I lifted my eyes to God and my spiritual reason came to me by his spirit. And what happens in Nebuchadnezzar's face? Thirdly, worship ensues. I don't know if you see the cure in verse 34. He lifts his eyes to God, his reason returns, and he worships. You know what that's called? The story of every single Christian. God wakes you up, perhaps after allowing you to be brought very low. Seeing the folly of your own pride. Spiritual reason comes to you by the Spirit of God who shows you that you're a sinner and that you need a Savior. And that Christ has been put forward as that Savior who died on the cross. That if you trust Him, He will take away all of your sins, bearing it on Himself. And He'll credit you with His righteous life. And for all of eternity, God looks at you as clothed in the sun. Isn't it interesting? The very first thing that Adam and Eve did after the fall into sin was to try to cover themselves. We can do this. Let us hide. God clothes you in the righteousness of his son by faith. Notice not only does Nebuchadnezzar come to know the living God, but he has a theological change. What was Nebuchadnezzar's theology before all of this? And it went something like this. I rule. I reign. I'm in control. There is no God that can rule over me. That was his theology. Verse 35 shows us that he has a changed theology. What is it? Look at verse 35. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. Including Nebuchadnezzar. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. This is the conqueror of the known world saying there is a God, a God of the angel armies. He is the one that actually rules. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand. You remember that Nebuchadnezzar, just two chapters before, said, there is no God whose hand can restrain my actions. And here, his theology has shifted. Scholars debate the question of whether Nebuchadnezzar just grew a little bit or whether he actually was converted that the Spirit of God changed his heart and he came to be a follower of the living God. In my humble judgment, given the things that Nebuchadnezzar says and the patterns that we see him exhibiting here that are the patterns of true conversion, I think it's very likely that Nebuchadnezzar came from the field living like a beast into the very arms of Jesus. John Calvin, describing repentance, says this. Repentance, quote, is the true turning of our life to God. A turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of him. And it consists in the mortification of our flesh and of the old man and the vivification of the spirit. In a word, I interpret repentance as regeneration. Whose sole end is to restore us to the image of God that has been disfigured and all but obliterated. Nebuchadnezzar was brought low, and it was a blessing for Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps you could attest to the glory of God in bringing you low at a time in your life. It was hellish then. It was full of suffering then. But God actually allowed you to sink low so that you may cry out to him, See his glory, understand who he is, and cry out to him by the Spirit's aid for grace. There is a blessing in being brought low. It causes us to see our need for God. Maybe you would say, well, when I was brought low, I was already a Christian. Yes, preacher, I... The Lord allowed me to be brought low, but I was already a Christian. I've been a Christian for most of my life. And there was a period of time when I was brought low. Listen to what our confession of faith says. This is the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Chapter 5, paragraph 5 on providence. This is an excellent statement. Quote, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts, to chastise them for their former sins, or to discover unto them, meaning, in New English, let them see in themselves. To discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. And to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy ends. 
So that whatsoever befalls any of his elect is by his appointment for his glory and their good. End quote. Being brought low is a blessing for the people of God. For in it, we have nothing to cling to but the living God. So we see the pride of man. We see the blessing of being brought low. And lastly, we see the offer of mercy. The offer of mercy. And this is where I want us to close. In the interpretation of the dream, Daniel speaks of the offer of mercy. He says, listen, heaven, God, is going to allow you to have your kingdom back one day. But not before you come to understand that he rules. But then he says in verse 27, break off your sins and your iniquities. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel is a preacher here. He says, look, O king, God has spoken. Stop sinning. Leave off from your pride. It ensnares you. Isn't it interesting there? Break off your sins. Like you're chained to this prideful sin. Perhaps there might be mercy. There's a hope of future mercy here. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's story is our story in that here we sit some 25, 2600 years later. None of us rules the known world. There's no one in this room, no offense, to which the rest of us say, Your Majesty. But oftentimes, most all of us say, Your Majesty, when we look in the mirror. And the story of Nebuchadnezzar is a little bit of our story. Because to this day, particularly for those of you outside of Christ, those of you who have not trusted in Christ, you're hearing not a dream in its interpretation, but the word of God proclaimed. And you're hearing in your ears that God will offer you mercy. God will pardon your sins. He will receive you and he will love to do it. But you don't get to determine the terms. He does. And his terms are singular. I sent my son to die for sinners. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross. And when he died, I punished him in the place of sinners. For every evil deed, every evil thought, every evil action and word. It was all poured out on him. And so there's coming a day, the king of kings says to you, when you will be judged for your sins. And he says to you, Come to Christ. I, the righteous judge, have sent my Savior to offer you mercy. My eternal Son put on flesh and walked among you. He did what you could not do perfectly obeyingly, and He died for sins. Come to Him. Break off from your sins and find righteousness in Christ alone. You see, the King of Kings still speaks to the so-called kings of this world. Every last one of us that enthrone ourselves in our own hearts. He offers mercy and there's time. If you have breath, there's time to come to Christ who is the very scope and theme of all of these pages. From Genesis to Revelation, the theme is God is going to save a people who don't deserve it. 
He will love them. He will bring them to himself. He will do everything necessary to save them. Friends, thankfully, at least I hope, you haven't built 15 million bricks and stamped your name on every last one of them to the praise of your own glory. But in your heart, like me, outside of Christ, that's what you do every day. You glory in your shame. I glory in my shame. But the living God has sent His Son. And through this word today, in your hearing, He calls you, come to me and I will give you rest. For some of us, He let us wander, figuratively speaking, in the fields for years so that we would come to the end of ourselves. Others of us, like the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9, he just wakes up in an instant. But however he does it, isn't it glorious that he doesn't let us love ourselves and our sins more than him? Come to him, friend. The pride of man, the blessings of being brought low, and yet the glorious offer of mercy. But don't miss the warning of the very last verse of chapter 4 of Daniel. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. Isn't that what 1 Peter 5, 5 says? God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Nebuchadnezzar was given by very difficult circumstances, spirit wrought humility to cry out to God. Have you? Let us pray. Almighty God, for each believer in this place, we offer you praise that you didn't let us stay in the delusion of thinking that we are God and King. For every believer in this place, we thank you for your mercy that is undeserved. That before we were even born, you planned from all eternity to send your son to die for us. And Lord, today we pray that those in this room who have not come to Christ, who have not received him by faith alone, trusting in him, not their religious works and deeds, but trusting him and what he's done by faith alone, that, Lord, they might receive the offer of mercy. That you extend to any who will hear. Have your way among the hearts of this people here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.